Welcome to part two of my conversation with Margot Bloomstein, whose latest book is Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. If you missed part one, you can probably find it on whatever platform you're using to listen to this. Okay, without further delay, here is part two of Saving UX with Margot Bloomstein. Because I want to ask you about some concepts in the book that might relate to, to this concept around UX. And you'd even hinted in the earlier uh, part of the conversation, you mentioned like the Twitter wars and people going back and forth on what things mean and what we call ourselves and, and all that. Um, and there, there was a, a section in there, I think you said something effective, plain language builds confidence. And that resonated to me as, as we also we started mentioning before, like the terms for what we do have changed so much over the years. You know, uh, IA, IXD, uh, copywriter, content, mm. product designer, visual designer, uh, interaction. Like there's so many different ways to describe what we do that might make sense to those of on the inside. But I guess I'm curious, what do you think in terms of the impact they have to the, the folks that, that we serve and collaborate with? And from a content strategy perspective, how should we look at what, how we describe what we do? Yes, plain language builds confidence. Um, one of the people with, with whom I spoke extensively when I was researching Trustworthy, I, I think I spoke with people at um, more, more than a, a dozen, maybe two dozen different brands and organizations across a broad variety of industries. One of the people that I spoke with several times um, was Nicole Fenton. And at the time she had been working with, um, with the federal government and um, supporting content strategy needs through the National Institutes of Health, as well as separately with the FBI and with both organizations. One of the, one of the key points that they surfaced was that plain language matters and accuracy matters, but precision and accuracy are not always the same thing. It's good to be specific. It's good to use the words that, that can accurately convey meaning. But when you're talking to a lay audience, when, when you're talking to people that maybe are that don't necessarily have the same level of technical expertise as the people who wrote the content or the people who contributed to the content. When you're talking to an audience that does not have that same level of technical expertise and then is further kind of uh, burdened by maybe the emotion in a moment because they're facing a tough decision for which they need information, that isn't the time. To, to break out all of the really technical jargon and force them to wade through it and force them to, to kind of sift through shades of meaning. I think we can choose language that helps clarify information, that gives people enough specific details so that they can both make good choices as well as feel good about the choices that they're making uh, without burdening them with further having to, to learn and self-educate and, and navigate our language. Uh, I do think that there's a time and place for that though. I think there's a, an opportunity to further empower people by letting them kind of dig into jargon when they're ready. 
when they're when they're willing and able to to kind of take on more information, I think that that can be a a wonderful thing. But so, for example, with the example with um, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that with the uh, the example from uh, National Institutes of Health. There, Nicole had been specifically focusing on clinicaltrials.gov. And clinicaltrials.gov is the, the website that people might go to when when they're in dire straits. Maybe they've exhausted all other all other avenues for treating a complex disease or a complex medical situation. Um, they've exhausted all of the, the conventional routes for treating it. And now their doctor's saying, I don't have anything else. But you know, there's this trial going on, or or maybe they come to the site themselves and they say, I don't know what else to do for maybe me or for my loved one. I, I don't know what other paths I can take. So what is kind of the, the nascent science coming down the route, coming down the road? Do you, do you have any other options for me? Yeah, maybe it isn't quite ready for prime time yet, but I don't know if I'm going to be around by the time it comes to prime time. So let's see. Let's see what we can do. And when people are in that kind of heightened emotional state, they're under the stress of having to make complex medical decisions for themselves or for a loved one, that isn't the time that they need to also be faced with big learning opportunities around technical jargon um, to describe their disease or treatment options, or even just to navigate the legalese behind clinical trials. The problem, though, that site faced is that sometimes people were signing up for clinical trials without fully understanding that not everything on there had been vetted. Just because it was listed on a government website didn't mean it was necessarily endorsed by the government or or endorsed and supported by, by the FDA. In fact, it meant that it hadn't been yet, but the trial was listed there because they were still trying to, to collect more participants for it or, or test out new investigational medicine. And... People didn't always realize that. And sometimes the, the outcomes of that misunderstanding were disastrous. In other cases, people were coming to the site and seeing kind of big wall of text of all the legalese explaining that, yep, you know what, this, this isn't final yet. Make sure you have these conversations with your doctor or healthcare practitioner or internal medicine specialist before you decide to move forward, understand that these are all of like the pros and cons and risks that you may face. And they just saw that in paragraph after paragraph. And you know what it's like to see that, that kind of wall of text where you're like, I can't, I can't today. I'm beyond it. This is not the right time for me. And as a result, they were kind of recusing themselves from those opportunities. Maybe, maybe deciding, this, this isn't going to be a path that I can go down right now. I just, I cannot give it my all and it is demanding my all. So in those types of cases, those clinical trials were missing out on people. And in the other cases, sometimes people were missing out on, on some of the constraints and concerns that they needed to, to really address before they moved forward. In both cases, though, it wasn't really supporting the, the advancement of medicine or treatment for those people that maybe needed it most. So what Nicole did in their research in looking at, at kind of the needs of, of medical practitioners and labs that were using the site, as well as prospective patients and their families, 
was to navigate around well, what is the right language? What is the right content strategy? What are the right content types, the right sort of user experience to present this information, to invite people into the experience, but not in a way that, that dumbed things down, not in a way that, that overpromised or underprepared them for what they needed to know and the decisions they needed to make. So the work that, that they focused on was how do we limit the number of decisions that people really have to make? How do we use language that, as I said, is specific and accurate, but not overly precise? One of the, one of the topics that came up when we spoke is around the issue of even something as simple as saying, talk to your doctor about this before you move on. Well, not everybody has a doctor. Sometimes they see a nurse practitioner. Sometimes it's their healthcare practitioner. Sometimes They've only ever really seen someone at a clinic that they don't consider their doctor, just the doctor that happened to be in that day. So the clinicaltrials.gov had to navigate what is language that is big enough, encompassing enough to meet the needs of most people without, without dumbing it down. I write in the book how there are other opportunities, other points where where we do need to introduce jargon. Jargon isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially when we can use it to help people gain more confidence, to help them self-educate so that they can ask the right questions at the right level of detail from whether it's a customer service associate or from their own doctor so that they can get the information they need to continue to make good decisions and feel good about the decisions they make. Um, in, uh, in some of the, the later chapters, we talk about that in the context of, of navigating cancer diagnosis and care and, and how in so many cases there, it's not a case where, where physicians should be dumbing down the information because people do need to wrangle with a level of complexity to be able to make good decisions on behalf of themselves and their loved ones. And, and sometimes when we, when we oversimplify things, whether you are managing the user experience in a hospital for a hospital website or for financial services, maybe educating people about how to manage their 401k or, or make the tough decision of taking money out of a 401k early, those are not times to dumb down information. Those are times to focus more on how we can educate and self help our audiences self-educate so that they can get up to speed in the jargon, so that we can offer them a ladder, sort of a bridge from where they are now to where we need them to be. And that can all be in the context of, of plain language, of using language that is appropriate to meet them where they are and help them get to where we need them to go. But I think in order to do that well, we need to think hard about well, how far do we need them to go? How far do they think they need to go in terms of their level of education um, and level of discourse, their level of diction to be able to operate with a level of, of confidence, not bewilderment as well as not, not condescension either. Yeah. I, now putting this in the, in the healthcare space and you're, you're talking life or death for some of these topics, you know, cancer care, and it's, it's really easy to see how critical this is to, you know, not only our survival, you know, our, our, our finances, our well-being, et cetera. I'm curious, like knowing how this works in those domains, I imagine you have similar experiences as you work with 
clients or potential clients with people who have different degrees of knowledge around content strategy and the work and the value that what you do. How does um, understanding different levels of content and and your audience's different levels of understanding and their different states of being, how does that change how you interact with them, how you communicate what you do, what you want to do and, and get buy-in for that using some of these, these uh, strategies? Ultimately, so much of what I do, whether it is in pre-sales or, or the proposal process, developing a statement of work, um, and then actually doing the work, looking to help my client kind of become the hero in their organization, help yeah, other people rally phrase. around them. So much of that is around uh, building trust and, and educating. And I think as we've discussed before, there's no end to the education, it seems like, in our industries. And maybe that's the case in most industries, most consulting type industries, where we're trying to help people help themselves. When we're trying to help clients engage us in a better way to ultimately help their end users. It seems like the education is never ending, but I'm always looking at, well, how can I first start by teaching them about content strategy? Maybe, maybe that's where we have to begin. Maybe I need to give them the words so that they can more appropriately advocate for it within their organization. Or when someone in HR asks, what's this new project about? Or, or um, someone in finance is saying, you know, why are we funding this? What's going on? I want them to be able to talk about, you know, this isn't just so that we can write in a more consistent way or um, spec out content and scripts for our customer service team that, you know, sounds more in line with our voice and style and tone. I want them to be able to talk about these are the financial benefits. These will be the benefits to recruitment and retention. And ultimately, this is why we're going to do this to empower our target audience, because maybe it's also part of our civic responsibility right now as a company operating in a, in a politically fraught climate. I want them to be able to do that. So a lot goes into talking about what are the terms they should be using? Um, what are the terms that resonate there? And what should we stay away from? Because I'm learning as much from them as they are from me. Hopefully, ideally, um, I'm learning from them. Like, you know, what are the the sort of third rails within their organizational culture? So we kind of go back and forth in that way to figure out what are the tools they need, um, what what is the the kind of scripted guidance that they need from me to be able to best advocate for this work, and then at the same time, they're helping me understand more about the existing publishing culture, so that we're bringing the right people into the right meetings and making sure that that they have the tools that they need to appropriately evangelize for this work too. I think that's a perfect segue. There's a, you know, you're talking about the, the, the healthcare part of it as well and this education. Uh, I think one of your, your, the people you interviewed with, I think they were from the UK NHS said something to the effect about poor health literacy led to poor health outcomes. And it made me wonder, is the same true of UX and content strategy? Does poor design literacy lead to poor design and and you know leading people through that journey of of uh, high level content to detailed content? You know, I mean, you just talked through through some of that. I don't know. Do you think is that a relevant? Does that concept apply to us as well? I think that I think that's probably a fair assessment. I'm thinking of something that I I heard from Erin Kassane maybe. 10 years ago or so, when she was talking about how we write about our ideas, how we 
how we write and communicate our ideas, not as designers, but just as, as humans, that the better we're, or maybe the more distinctly and in greater detail that we are able to write and communicate our, our beliefs, our ideas, our vision for the future, the more words and the more precise vocabulary that we have in which to do that, the more distinct and detailed our ideas themselves can be. And that kind of, it was one of those moments where it's almost like you feel like your brain shifting 90 degrees in your head of like, whoa, that's, that's something different than how I thought about the world before. Because I think as a, as a pretty visual person, I've always thought, well, if you can think about something, then you can figure out how to articulate it. If you can envision it, then you can figure out how to articulate it. But I think there is that, that issue of, of nuance and clarity. And that maybe this runs counter to what I was just saying about the, the value of specific and accurate terminology over precise terminology. But I think that there is a lot of value in that when you have greater greater design literacy, when you're able to understand references in a more detailed way um, and kind of pull on more points of comparison, it allows you to then think more, think in a more broad way, think maybe in a more precise way and communicate your ideas in a more precise way as well. If only because you can say better less like this, more like that, and push back on ideas and points of comparison. To, And I think so much of what we do with our clients is is around that. I know um, a lot of the work that, that Dan Mall at Happy Cog uh, promotes is, is the idea of, of getting things out there for reaction. That when you engage with, with an organization, it isn't always necessary to come to the table first with your best idea or, or what you think is the ultimate idea, but rather to give them something to which they can react so that they can say, oh, I like this about it. Wait, this isn't quite it or more like that, less like that, so that you're gradually reaching this point of, of consensus on what you both mean, because you may not necessarily share a common language. We shouldn't always expect our clients to have the same level of, of literacy within the discipline that we do. And why would they want to? They're hiring us to be who they are not. So I think that, yeah, I think that's a good, that's probably a fair comparison <laughs> that, that that level of literacy helps us communicate in a, in a more appropriate way. It also sounds like, you know, if, if, if I'm interpreting correctly, if we understand where our partners are in their in their literacy, we can adjust our messaging to fit. If they're less literate, we might use more general, uh, less specific terms. And if they're and then gradually bring them along that journey to more specific, more accurate. Uh, but to, I think, as you said, to to start out with too much detail early on might just be uh, off-putting and confusing. Yeah, I think so because. When you come right out of the gate with everything that you know, does that does that turn off the other person? Does that impress the other person? You don't know until the other person has had a chance to react. This kind of goes back to what we were saying about the early days of of the of the web and so much brochureware. 
we didn't always allow those opportunities for reaction. It was a lot of throwing it against the wall and seeing what would stick. And um, I think being able to see what resonates, to see what sticks, that's how that's how we don't just design at our audiences. That's how we design for and with our audiences. And that's really kind of the nature of so much conversation. We don't have we don't have monologues. We we have dialogue. We seek to have dialogue. I think that's the the nature of the best kind of human interaction. I think that's where a lot of people have felt that it has fallen apart over the past year when we're when we're talking at cameras just over Zoom with with little human interaction and response. All right. This has been great. I know we're, we're getting close to time. We're running up on, our, on an hour here, and I want to be respectful of that. If there's one thing you would leave people with or one thing you'd like to see more of or see people doing more often or one point from this conversation that you just like to emphasize, you know, what would that be? Look to empower your users through the, the choices that you make as a designer, or as a developer, or as a writer, figure out how you can help your user gain confidence, gain education, feel smarter about what they're doing at the end of the day, because that is how we, that, that's how we gain their trust in, that's how we build their trust in themselves, that's how we gain their trust in our brands and the organizations we serve. And ultimately, that's how we rebuild their trust in our society. And I think that that is ultimately the best kind of work, the highest impact work you can do regardless of your industry. And I think that is the, ultimately the work that we all need to be doing as designers. Today. Fantastic. Margo, thank you so much. Uh, folks, you can find the show notes for this show at uh, the website, sux.live. That's S-U-X for Saving UX. You can get this and all other episodes on YouTube, uh, Spotify, and probably anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Uh, once again, I just want to thank Margo for joining me today. As always, it was a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Before you go, don't forget to check out Margo's latest book, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. There are links to Amazon as well as a local bookseller in the show notes at www.sucks.live. That's S-U-X for saving UX. Tune in next week for my conversation with David Dylan Thomas, author of Designing for Cognitive Bias. See you then.